1: Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick.
2: siege was part of God's rod of discipline to get the people of Israel to realize their sin and their idolatry. They had been living in rebellion against God, in opposition against God. And so God is putting the squeeze on them. And instead of the king humbling himself and saying, my ears have heard the most deplorable words, we need to humble ourselves and repent. What does he say? He says, that dirty Elisha, this is all his fault. The prophet Elisha, he blames Elisha, the prophet instead of humbling himself.
1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 2nd Kings. In 2nd Kings chapters 6 and 7, we read that Israel is under siege. The Lord allowed the siege because the people had become so wicked and idolatrous. God used Israel's enemies as a rod of discipline in the hopes that their pain would draw His people back to Him. Pastor Gary teaches us that instead of repenting in dust and ashes as they should have, Israel's king actually blamed the prophet Elisha for all of the country's woes. In this, we see that when we fall deeper and deeper into sin, it becomes harder and harder for us to take responsibility for our actions. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary for part one of today's message. We can't keep it to ourselves.
2: Well, nuclear warfare is obviously a very horrific thing. And because of the great devastation and destruction that nuclear weapons can cause, it's the reason why many people get nervous when you think about a few madmen who have nuclear capabilities in countries like Iran and North Korea and how it is possible that through the use of a nuclear weapon, you can annihilate an entire city, sometimes even small countries, in the blink of an eye ancient warfare was very different. It was, it was not, you know, today we use the term shock and awe in, in terms of modern warfare, not in ancient warfare. It was not shock and awe. It was slow and calculated. And one of the most used forms of warfare in ancient times was something called siege warfare, siege warfare, where an army would attack a city by simply building a siege ramp around the city and hemming it in, and then it was kind of a game of cat and mouse. It was a standoff at that point. And a siege warfare would become very barbaric because it became a game of wait and see. Now, you know, in ancient times, sometimes they would, you know, fire the uh, occasional arrow across a city wall. And then later with the Greeks and uh, even more so with the Romans, they developed the catapult and they would project projectiles over a city wall. But basically, in those days, cities were fortified with somewhat of an impenetrable city wall. And they didn't have the technology in the day to demolish the city wall, and they, they, they didn't really have the ability to scale it very well or to tunnel under it, so there would just be a standoff. An army would encircle a, a city that was walled in, And it would become this game, not even so much of weaponry and skill, as much as it was a a game of endurance. Because in these ancient times, when these cities, uh, because they knew that, that siege warfare was a common practice, these cities would prepare for that possibility. Many cities would then stockpile food and water supplies for months, if not years in anticipation of the possibility that some army might come and hem them in and here they are within their city wall and so they have to have the capability of surviving that's kind of what these you know siege warfares became and sometimes it would last for years remember in your in your reading of homer that it took 20 years to uh, to to subdue troy 20 years of siege warfare and so The army outside the city was hoping that the people within the city would eventually run out of food and water or disease and plague would overtake them and that they'd surrender. People within the city hoped that the army outside would also end up without a food and water supply, that they would deplete themselves of their food and water supply and or the country that they came from would call them back and that they would just kind of withdraw. That was the hope. But what ended up happening here in a situation where, where we are here in Second Kings chapter 7 is that this battle of endurance, this battle of survival, this battle of the will ended up becoming so long that the people within the city wall uh, ended up doing unthinkable things. So here's the scene. In chapter 7, what we have here is Ben-Hadad, The king of Aram. Now, Aram is the ancient name for Syria, so I'll probably use that term interchangeably Syrians or Arameans. The king of Aram, Ben Hadad, has besieged the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, Israel, again, is divided at this time. The capital city for the southern kingdom of Judah is Jerusalem, but the capital city for the northern kingdom of Israel is Samaria. And the Bible says that Ben Hadad has taken the forces of of Syria and and encircled. the the capital city of Samaria, and engaged them in siege warfare. And the people of Israel within the city of Samaria, the siege has gone on so long, and it's taken such a toll. And I hate to say it, and I'm going to ruin your mother's day, but they ended up within the city of Samaria resorting to cannibalism. They ended up resorting to cannibalism. In fact, it tells us in the previous chapter, something we didn't read that I'll just show you in a minute, that two moms actually make a deal with each other about eating their sons. Two moms make this pact. Why don't we eat? One mom said, why don't we eat my son tonight and tomorrow we'll eat your son? That's, it's in the Bible. I know that sounds terrible, but it's in the Bible. And they make this deal together. And the Bible says that they eat the one son the one night. And then on the second day, the second mom says, uh, I, can't, I can't find my son. She hid him. She hid him. That's a good mom. She hid the son, and the first mom then goes to the king's court and sues mom number two on grounds of breach of contract. Can you believe this? Go to chapter 6. I'm going to show you. It's really in the Bible. There's some groaning in the crowd. Well, you'll be happy at the end. Just bear with me in this. But here we've got to make our way through the tragedy of it to get to the good news. So chapter 6, verse 24. It says this, sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. Okay, now, you know you're having a bad day when the most delicious thing on the menu is a donkey head. All right? Because that's where they've got. They've gotten so bad, they're like, you know what? What can we eat? How about some donkey heads? How much are they going for? Well, they're going for 80 shekels of silver, which in today's terms would be 530 bucks. 530 bucks. Right? You know, that's what you're going to get for dinner. And if that's not bad, what is a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels? Well, the price five shekels today would be about 32 bucks. NIV says seed pods. King James Bible doesn't say seed pods, does it? It says... Dove dung. That's what they're eating. Tastes probably like chocolate. But anyhow, (laughs) verse 26, this is where it gets ugly. If you think that's bad, donkey heads and dove dung, if you think that's bad, look at verse 26. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried to him. Here's the story. Help me, my lord, the king. The king replied, if the Lord does not help you, where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor? From the wine press? Then he asked her, what's the matter? She answered, this woman said to me, give up your son so we we may eat him today, and tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give up your son so we may eat him. But she had hidden him. When the king heard the woman's words, he tore his robes. And as he went along the wall, the people looked, and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. Now, tearing your robe and sackcloth was all a sign of mourning and grief. And he said, verse 31, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Now, give me your attention, please. What he's saying is, you know, here he hears this devastating news. Two moms are in an argument about a contract about eating their sons, and he, and he's devastated about it. He's, he's thinking, have we sunk that low that this is the condition now, the depravity of the human heart? You guys, you're eating your babies. This is horrific. Now, instead of the king turning at that moment to God and saying, this is the lowest of lows. God, you got to help us as the king. I repent on behalf of our nation because this was the siege was part of God's rod of discipline to get the people of Israel to realize their sin and their idolatry. They had been living in rebellion against God, in opposition against God. And so God is putting the squeeze on them. And instead of the king humbling himself and saying, my ears have heard the most deplorable words, we need to humble ourselves ourselves and repent what does he say he says that dirty elisha this is all his fault the prophet elisha he blames elisha the prophet instead of humbling himself well now imagine go back to chapter 7 now imagine that if this is how bad it has gotten for the people within the city who are basically middle and upper class people now they've resorted to cannibalism of all things Imagine then what it's like for people who are the lowest on the social ladder. And in particular in those days, the people who were the lowest of the low were lepers. And we talked a little bit about leprosy last week. Well, we talked a lot about it because it was the story of Naaman and the healing of Naaman. And I'm not going to rehash that whole thing about leprosy. Only so much as to remind us that, again, leprosy is, it was not the result of sin, but it's a picture of sin. It does serve to paint a picture for us. That, that, that the diseased, incurable condition of a leper is very similar to all of us in that we have, a, we have a disease. There's an incurable condition. It's called sin. We need the Lord. He's the only cure and the only remedy. Now in these days, of course, the lepers, were they were social outcasts, they were shunned, they were despised, they were quarantined. And so what we find here when we come to chapter 7 verse 1 is that we have four lepers, four men who are lepers, and they are at the gate of the city. Now they're not inside the gate, they're outside. These are Israeli, Jewish men who have leprosy and there's this siege standoff going between the Syrians and the Israelites and they have no place to go these lepers. So th- so I want you to picture them just kind of huddling under the archway of the city gate. They can't get in. They're not allowed in. They they can't they can't go to the Syrians. They're just kind of stuck here in no man's land just kind of huddling there under the archway of the of the city gate. And they say to each other, "You know what? We we're going to die here." They say, "You know, we We need to get in the city gate. But then they realize that's never going to happen. They're never going to let us back in. First of all, because we have leprosy. Second of all, because there's a famine. They're eating their children in there. They're not going to give us any food. On a good day, all we got was a crust of bread. So certainly, they're not going to open the gates and let us in. And they say to themselves, on the other hand, if we go over to the Syrian camp, they're liable to kill us because we're not Syrians. But what are we going to do here? So what they realize is, We might as well go to the Syrian camp. We can't get in the city. There's no food there. We might as well go to the Syrians, just kind of surrender. What's the worst that could happen? They'll kill us, but we'll die if we stay here anyway. So let's just go over to the Syrian camp. And so they do. The lepers are no threat to the Syrians. They let them live because, you know, they look at them as lepers and, you know, they're unarmed. They're no threat to us. The people within the city, you know, they don't have any regard for the lepers. So here they are. They're the social outcasts. They are diseased. They are despised, rejected, and they have no place to go, and they're going to die. So they, they kind of, I get this picture kind of with a little trepidation here, they start to make their way over to the Syrian camp. What do we have to lose? We, we might die here, but we might as well go see if they've got food for us. And, and I just kind of see them approaching the Syrian camp here, just kind of tiptoeing. You know, hello. Just, just four lonely lepers here, you know, don't shoot, you know, we don't, we don't mean any harm. We're, we're, we're not armed. We just want some food. And here they come. Just, you know, we surrender. We just, just kind of let us in. Just kind of creeping into the camp a little bit. It's a picture for me of how all of us come to God. You know, have you ever, have you ever, when you look back at how you got saved, I mean, wasn't it one of these moments where you're just like, okay, God, I'm coming out, you know, don't shoot. You know, I, I'm surrendering to you now. Sometimes, sometimes, you know, I've heard people talk about conversion experiences. And, and, you know, if you know the Lord, you have your own. You have your own story. But sometimes we dismiss other people's stories. You know, I've, I've heard from time to time people, for example, they'll talk about people in prison who get Jesus, who get saved, who have a conversion experience in prison. And people dismiss that like, well, that's, and you hear that term, well, that's just jailhouse religion. That's just jailhouse religion. Well, what other kind is there? Now, I mean, think about it. The fact of the matter is that, that you and I came to Christ because there was a moment of our perceived need that converged with the love of God. And whether it was prison that brought that to the surface, or maybe a trial, or an illness, or a divorce, or a death, there are a lot of things that that end up stirring our hearts to make us aware of our own perceived deep need for God, and then it is met, it converges with the love of God. So, yeah, jailhouse religion, sure, all of us have had some experience that exposes our deep need. These lepers know their deep need here, they come fully surrendered into the Syrian camp. It's a picture for me of just like the, how we come fully surrendered eventually to God when we understand our deep need. Now, they get here. They get here to the edge of the camp. And they kind of make their way up kind of the dirt siege ramp that's been built around the city of Samaria. And they crest over it. And they look and then they just see a sea of tents of the Syrian army. Just a sea of tents. But they they look around and they say to themselves, this is kind of odd. There, there are no guards posted here at the siege ramp. This is kind of interesting. And they kind of creep in a little further. And what they notice is, it's like a ghost town. The horses and donkeys are tethered. They're all there like they should be. There's pots of food that are cooking under open fires. The tents are, are gently flapping in the breeze. There's Michael Buble being played on the sound system. <laughs> And they're walking in here and it's a ghost. Insert your favorite singer, whoever you want it to be. And so, and as they come into the camp, they're like, this place is deserted. It's empty. This is crazy. Now, what has happened is God has performed a miracle. The miracle that he performed was to make the Syrians think and hear the sound of an army. Look at verse 6 again. In our story, look at verse 6. It says, For the Lord had caused the Arameans, the Syrians, to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk. Notice this, the timing of the day, it's dusk. And abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. Okay, this is the miracle God... Performs on behalf of the Israelites. He causes the Syrians to hear the sound of a great army. Now, it's interesting because if you couple that with something in chapter 6, it, it very likely could be the sound of an army of angels. There's a story in chapter 6 where Elisha sees an army. Of chariots of fire and horses. And so it appears to be an army of angels. Perhaps then God causes this army of angels to be heard by the Syrians, such that the Syrians then panic. They all go AWOL. They scatter. They leave their tents. They leave their possessions, their weapons, their valuables, their food, their water, everything. They just scatter completely. And these four unsuspecting lepers come walking in to this empty camp, And they inherit it all. They get everything. They get the weapons, the food, the clothes, the possessions, the the water. Everything becomes theirs. Now, let me ask you something. Is this not a picture of what God has done for us? Here you have these lepers who are the most despised, diseased, They are the forsaken of their culture, and they just come in to what God has graciously and gloriously provided for them. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. They didn't contribute to it. They just received it. That's grace, because that's a picture of all of us. We come diseased, deformed, sick with sin to God and all He wants to do is lavish upon us His goodness and His grace and His wonderful provision. We didn't do anything to earn it, contribute to it, provide for it. But God in His wonderful grace for us just lavishes it upon us. That's the end of Psalm 23. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23 ends with the idea of a banquet where God even in front of our enemies will spread out this lavish banquet for us to feast, where goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Listen, that is a military term in the Hebrew. It doesn't mean to follow, come alongside of. It is a military term that means to pursue, to pursue. Surely, God's goodness and mercy will pursue me. All the days of my life. Because that's how much he loves us. Revelation 19 is also a picture. When Jesus Christ returns. Revelation 19 talks about the wedding of the lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. Fine linen bright and clean was given her to wear. We are that bride. He is the groom. The church waiting for that long coming reunion with Christ. When he will spread out this wedding banquet feast for us. And we will partake. We didn't do anything to earn it, deserve it, or contribute to it. But in his grace for us, he says, come and dine, feast, it's all yours. So here come these four lepers into the tents of these Syrians. Everybody's gone, but everything's been left for them. They see one tent that says, officer's mess. They head there first. Cause they know there's better food in the officer's tent. And they go into officer's mess. There it is. Oh, the banquet just spread out for them. They start eating fried chicken, mashed potatoes, green beans, collard greens, cornbread. They're southern Syrians. <laughs> and they're just, oh, they're piling it in. Oh, this is wonderful. Oh, look at this. They're throwing hush puppies in the air. They're, they're taking handfuls of lucky charms. They're dancing under it. Cause after all, they are Leprechauns. But anyway, uh, oh, uh, anyway, so it's 3,000 years ago, okay? And it's a cure today. Don't send me emails. But anyway, so here they are just enjoying this wonderful. God has given them the victory, given them the banquet, their feasting, possessions, all of this. Look at what it says here in verse 8, middle of verse 8. They ate and drank and carried away silver, gold, and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. So they're, they're running around these different tents. like, this is incredible. They're eating all the food. They're taking the silver, the gold, the clothing. They're burying it. They're hoarding it. They're keeping it for themselves. They find another tent. This is the enlisted men's tent. They got the dessert buffet going here. They pull themselves up. Apple pie, deep dish, cobbler, tiramisu, tres leches, banana cream pie. They just start piling it all in. This is incredible. This is wonderful. And right about that time, as they're wiping the cherry cobbler off their face, they say to themselves, this isn't right. This, this isn't right. We're, we're here gorging ourselves, feasting on the goodness of the Lord and His victory and all that He's given us. And all the while, there are people dying in this city. Our own people are dying in the city. While we're here stuffing our faces, gorging on the goodness of God.
1: Jump in and you'll find the your connection towards your new life. What a fantastic time we've had studying Second Kings together today. Don't forget to join us next time as we continue to dig into the story of God working through history and nations to shape, discipline, and preserve His people, Israel. We at Cornerstone Connection would love the opportunity to serve you further as God writes your own story in His redemptive plan. We have companion resources for you on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc, where Pastor Gary offers a deeper look into several of his studies to help you gain a better understanding of the Word. You can also subscribe to our podcast or take us anywhere with the mobile app. Cornerstone Chapel is located in Leesburg, Virginia, and we'd love for you to join us for weekend services or our Wednesday night Bible study and fellowship time. Our Sunday services begin at 30, 10, and 11.45 a.m., and Wednesday nights begin at 7 p.m. Find out more at cornerstoneconnection.cc. If you have any questions for us, feel free to call 703-771-1500. We continue to pray for you that you would understand the greatness of God's love for you. We have loved our time together today and invite you to join us again for the next edition of Cornerstone Connection.
0: They say you're a wandering soul That
2: you've got no place to go Still, you know, you're not alone.